You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archaeology. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Amanda Regan and Dr. Eric Gonzaba, co-creators of the NEH-funded digital history project, Mapping the Gay Guides. Dr. Regan teaches history at Clemson University, and Dr. Gonzaba teaches American studies at California State University in Fullerton. Thank you both so much for talking about this incredible project. I'm so excited. But I would like to pick up on something that was mentioned earlier, which is student involvement with this project. It sounds like you've got students working on building it, and you've got students sort of using it to research and to do interpretation or to pull out some of these stories. Could you tell us a little bit about how this project is being used in the academy? Our students on this project are our collaborators, and we couldn't do this project without them. We have three graduate research assistants in the American Studies Department at Cal State Fullerton, and a graduate and an undergraduate student here at Clemson University working on the project. And they do a variety of things. The biggest thing they do is help us with the transcription, because once we have digitized copies of these guides, we have to get that into data that can be read by a computer and automated software has not been as useful to us in creating the sort of structured data that we need. And so they're kind enough to go through and transcribe this data for us and add an extra layer of interpretation in classifying the data by location type. And then we also have students who are working on sort of the more digital end of it, trying to research these locations that don't have very clear-cut locations and find them so that we can associate geographical coordinates with them. So, for example, my graduate research assistant, whose name is Dominic Buca here at Clemson, is going through and trying to find these locations. And so he'll Google the Palisades Hotel And sometimes he'll be able to find a postcard in an archive for that hotel and then be able to associate an address with it. Sometimes that location still exists. So in particular, things like parks in, I think, I want to say it's Arkansas, there's a segment of the state capitol called the Senate Grounds that was a location in the guides. And so we have to go through and find each one of those. And many of them are able to be found via historical research. And then being a grad student on a project like this can be a lot of grunt work. Data entry is not exactly fun, but Eric and I are really committed to ensuring that the students get an opportunity to put a line on their CV, to write something for the project, to do some historical research. And we always give our grad students the opportunity to write vignettes for the site, which are these sort of public-facing digital explorations of LGBTQ history. And they get creative freedom to pick something that's interesting to them in the data, something that has popped up of interest. One of our students wrote about Balboa Park in San Diego, and they were able to write about the ways that Balboa Park was policed during the 1960s and 70s and was a spot that was sort of labeled as at your own risk because these were on the lookout for men congregating in the park. And so they really touch every aspect of our projects our graduate research assistants do, and they're amazing. It's kind of just a geeky stats question, but if you've had this small army of grad students transcribing and entering data, 
How much data is there? I mean, the guides were published, what, monthly, annually, and then maybe how many locations in each guide? I'm just trying to do some basic arithmetic. That's a great question. So they're published annually, uh, at least the men's guide is, and the women's guide eventually will be published annually as well, but we're focusing on the men's guide. The first guide has exactly 785 locations. That will increase to 4,461 by 1980, and then they get bigger. I could be wrong about this, Amanda, but there are about 5,000, 6,000 entries in the 1980s guides for every year. Not all spaces disappear every year. The nature of some of these spaces, like bars, a lot of bars are only open a year or two. And so maybe spaces are not unique, but we consider every single space in every single year a separate listing. So you're talking about over 100,000 listings that our grad students are going to hand input into a data set, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, just last semester alone, they digitized 20,000 uh, entries across four years. Holy cow. <laughs> I will tell you, too, some of our grad students are becoming like geography experts because they're doing entries in like Utah. They don't know any about the cities, but now they're like, oh, I know where Provo, Utah is because I had to write a listing every year for the last five weeks. So, you know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I will say, too, you know, those are the grad students and our undergrads who are helping create the data set. But we're also interested in making this a usable data set for students to use in courses, for teachers to be able to use in their courses. And even though there are, don't say, gay bills happening all across the country, there are some states like California, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, that are committed to making LGBT history part of their K-12 and college curriculums. And so we're thinking about how can Mapping the Gay Guides be part of this. And so I use my undergrad students, I hate to use this word, but as my guinea pigs about how are students thinking about using this site? What are they interested in? I assigned students to tell me a write-up about some site that they found. And I had one student who wrote about, I think it's called Mother's Noodle, this gay bar in Santa Ana. She goes, I drove past this space, which is no longer there anymore. And I was born in Santa Ana. I just never thought of Santa Ana as having a gay community. And yet I live two blocks away. I walk past this place every day. And I didn't realize that gay history is literally on my block, right? And it's just like, it changed my entire worldview. Everywhere I go, I'm constantly thinking, in what ways have gay and lesbians and bi people and trans people transformed this neighborhood, even though I don't necessarily have to see them directly, right? I think it's just a really great lesson that queer people are everywhere and they've shaped this country since its founding. You know, one of the other things we're committed to on this project is making sure that our data is open source and available. Our project has a set of specific goals, but there's a lot of researchers out there who can and do make use of this data for their own research projects to answer their own questions. We quite often share our data with others who want to use it to study a specific community or ask a specific question about a type of location. And so we're hopeful that our project will stand on its own and be an entry point for general users who want to look at this space on a map. But we also have the raw data available for those who want to dive in further. I was a little bit curious because you used an open source platform as well, and then it's an open data project. Is that an NEH requirement or was that a design choice? It's not a requirement of theirs. But it was something that when I was trained in digital history, I worked at somewhere called the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media, which is out of George Mason University. And Roy Rosenzweig was sort of a pioneer in digital history. And he deeply believed that digital history had the power to democratize history for the public. And in doing so, we had a commitment to make sure that this history was open source and available to anyone and everyone, right? And that's the promise of digital history. And so it was very important to me and to Eric as well when we were beginning this project that it be open source, accessible, reproducible, 
and that we be very transparent about our methodology and our findings um, and every step that goes into the project. When did you all start working on this project? What Ellen and I have seen is kind of a finished product. It's a working, polished map. But how long from the writing the grant and then actually assembling a team? Starting from the dissertation defense. Right? <laughs> That's a great way to put it, right? The dissertation defense was in May of 2019. But it was actually before the dissertation when we started thinking about this project. We have this wonderful photograph of us working at a whiteboard about trying to envision this project together. And then we started meeting that summer before we went to our prospective new jobs after that. And then Dr. Reagan and I were able to write a grant to get some seed money to build a prototype of this in the fall of 2019. That seed money came in. We were able to build a prototype based on that. And it helped us apply to the NEH grant, which we were able to get spring of 2021. Yeah, it was like April or May of 2021. So really, we're just in the second semester of this grant. You moved pretty fast getting all that stuff online. Yeah, it's pretty great. Thank you. So who's got the mapping chops? Because I think we've both learned to our detriment sometimes that mapping is a tricky business and requires you to think in spheres and it's hard. You know, it's not the same as on the back end as it is on the front end where you're like, cool, I can pan and swipe and zoom in. We both got our PhDs at George Mason University, and at George Mason, you have to take a series of digital history courses. And I learned to program at George Mason. And, you know, historians are no strangers to maps. We use maps all the time. You know, I'm not coming at this from the training of a geographer. I'm not formally trained as a geographer, but I'm trained as a digital historian. And part of that training involves knowing how to georectify maps historical maps onto modern maps and how to create historical data sets that have geographical coordinates. That's sort of where that training came from. But, you know, it's interesting. We've been talking with geographers in other departments at other universities, and it's so interesting to look at the ways that we look at this data and ask different questions because we come from different methodological commitments. You know, Eric and I are very much interested in putting the places on a map and looking at change over time. And they're very interested in things like how far were these locations from an established interstate? And so it's been a really fruitful collaboration to talk and see where we overlap and where we differ. We create our name, and then after we create their name, like a year in, we're like, it's actually not a greatest name ever because we're not just interested in the map feature of this, right? We're building a data set. And we gave that statistic earlier about the relation between African-American spaces and this label raunchy or RT. We didn't learn that by looking at a map. We learned that by looking at the data and comparing it via data software. So it's really interesting that even though we call it mapping the gay guys, we're really allowing people to think about this data in different ways. One of the ways is a visual map. There are many other ways you can also use our data to visualize change over time too. And what the great thing about the humanities, and I'm an American studies where we think of ourselves as an interdisciplinary program, but the great thing about the humanities and the social sciences is that you can use the same data set, but you can find incredible things that other people don't realize because you, you're thinking about questions entirely differently, which it's a great pleasure to do what we do. So are you going to give users additional tools for manipulating the data? Yes. We are working on building out Data API, which if you're not familiar with that, it stands for Application Programming Interface, which will power two new visualizations. Our mapping visualization on the site right now is wonderful, but it was very much bootstrapped at the beginning of the project to be sort of a prototype. And so we're going to transition that into a more sustainable software that will not only be able to handle the massive amounts of more data that we're going to release, but that will also allow you to do a little bit more complex filtering where you can filter by multiple things at once and overlap those categories. 
And then we're also going to roll out a visualization that allows you to look at these changing categorizations over time. So for example, you'll be able to look at all the bars that are classified as B for African-American bars, where those were over time and how they changed. Uh, and you'll be able to compare that by state, by type of location, how many were bars, how many were restaurants, how many were hotels, and of course, over time. Did the original guides describe location types or is that stuff that you all came up with after the fact? And I'm talking now park, bar, restaurant, theater, whatever. Yeah, that's a good question. So we have two columns that I'm sort of referring to here. One is something that we've called amenity features. And these are the categorizations that Damron uses to classify the locations. And they can be everything from, you know, PT for this location had a pool table to B for African-Americans predominant or frequent, the language changes over time. But they don't typically describe the type of space. They're more about the features of that space. And so what we've done is added another column that's a little bit more of a scholarly interpretation. And so that's our judgment call of what type of space that was. And so we have everything from bookstores to hotel bars to restaurants, bathhouses. In the 1980s, we begin to see health clinics, hotlines, community organizations. There's a whole bunch. You start to see travel agencies a lot. There's so many more interesting things coming. I didn't even think about travel agency as a place, but it would be such an important resource, especially back in the day, if you were looking for like a gay-friendly cruise or a gay-friendly tour of the river in Russia or whatever. Right, 100%. And also, there is a desire by gay men, lesbian women as well, to keep the money within what they would call the family, you know, be able to keep money within gay-friendly establishments too. So gay travel agents were a huge prize in many cities across the country. I'll also say, though, even though Damron doesn't include type information in the early guides, by the 80s, Damron does start separating places. So he does tell us, this is a bar, this is a bathhouse, this is a cinema, right? But we didn't have that information in the early guides, and we thought it was important for the users to to have some kind of information of what the space was because you know mother's noodle could be a restaurant it could be a bar you don't really know right so it's important for us to add that if we knew it right and a park is very different than an after hours club exactly exactly 100 amanda eric can't thank you enough for the generosity of your time today to talk about your historical work and your project we really appreciate your time thank you craig thank you Ellen. thanks for having us and if you would like more information about Eric and Amanda's work, you can visit the project. It's mappingthegayguides.org, or you can follow them on Twitter, at Gay Guides. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. <laughs>